Hi guys, it's Adia. And it's Matthew. Welcome to the IYNA podcast episode for June. So we have finally June. returned. And even though it's not June and it's not Pride Month, every month is Pride Month. And we exactly. want to be able to um, just continue with the advocacy. So here we are. So today we're going to be talking about the neurobiology and the brain structure of transgendered people mm. and um, transphobia and just general um, discrimination against people who don't identify with the binary gender spectrum mm. has become rampant in recent years. And we yes. thought it would, this is a really important topic to talk about because the research in transgendered um, brain research field is very limited. So we wanted to shed some light on whatever we could find in the field. Mm. So before we start, we're going to define a few terms for you that we'll be using throughout the podcast, um, just so it like makes sense. And you also know, like in your general life. Um, so gender identity is your sense of being male or female or anywhere in between and usually develops at a young age. So most children can actually identify their gender at around two years old. And in most cases, their gender identity is going to be the same as their biological sex. However, for a small percentage of people, they'll report significant clinical distress since their biological sex at birth doesn't actually match with their gender identity. Um, and so this is when they can start being labeled or classified as having gender dysphoria. Um, and so there are a number of labels used by people within this group um, with transgendered or trans being a broad term that covers many of the subtypes within this group. Yeah, so um, transgender is just a term that's used for um, people like Matthew said who are in this group, but um, it's also important to, I guess, then identify what cis means. So. Something cool is that I didn't know that I didn't know this actually before researching for this <laughs> podcast episode. But um, the Latin prefix for um, you know like cis it means on the near side of or on this side of. So essentially, when you say like cis man or cis woman, you're saying that this individual is near the side of female or male on the gender spectrum. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's what we're going to be that's what it means when we refer to people as cis men or cis women. And then non-binary is just someone who doesn't identify with any of the I guess labels on the gender spectrum. So, it, they they essentially just believe that or and they practice the philosophy that like gender is not a binary system like male and female. Mm. Yes. It's exactly. a spectrum. Yes. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> um so Without further ado, let's just dive into the research that we have got. And um, so first, we're going to look at the neurology of gender dysphoria and specifically what goes on in the brain. So there's this one theory developed around 20 years ago by Joe J.N. And he essentially showed that um, there's a part of the brain called the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis. It's called BNST. This is going to come up a lot throughout the podcast. And in transgendered male to female, so people who were born biologically sex male, but um but decided to become female, or their gender identity is female. Um, they, the, the anatomy of the BNST was more similar to a cis female than a cis male. Um, so, Audie, do you want to talk more about the opposite Yeah, so um, it, this is going to be quite a doozy, and it might be a little hard to follow, but just bear so, with me. Um, so, you're like you're I, great at this. Yeah, so there was this 1995 landmark study that Matthew said conducted by Joe uh, J.N. 
And essentially, it's, it focused on this very specific portion of the adult forebrain called the, and, and this is quite a mouthful, um, the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis. And the BNST is a structure that serves as the key relay center that connects the limbic forebrain, which is a structure in the brain responsible for feeding, reproduction, flight or fright response, you know, what you would expect, um, to the hypothalamus and brainstem regions. Mm -hmm. So specifically, it connects the limbic forebrain to the regions associated with the autonomic nervous system and neuroendocrine release. So it sounds pretty complicated, but the structure essentially allows for the relay of information between structures that deal with basic physiological and behavioral roles, such as reproduction, stress response, and growth and development. So this mm. study found that the BNST and trans women were very similar in size and that of cis men, and that's significant because there has been a recorded volume difference in the BNST of cis men and women. Specifically, the BNST in men tend to be larger. So other than this, unfortunately, there's not a lot um, of clear information that provides an explanation for, you know, just the differences in trans brain structures. Um, but yeah, so that is essentially this landmark study and people mm -hmm. have claimed it as the opposite sex theory. Um, there's not a lot of recent research that mm -hmm. I guess supports this theory, but um, this is nevertheless a very landmark study that yeah. um, started and serves as the foundation of you know, studying the anatomical differences of transgendered people's brains. Yeah. Um, thank you, Adia. <laughs> I, I think it's super interesting to see that even 20 years ago that there's like it was found that scientifically like it's proven that there is a neurobiological difference um, and people did actually look mm -hmm. more into that and expand on that um, but there are also other theories for the neurobiology of transgender people so I'm, I'm going to go into that more now um, so one of these theories has to do with the intrinsic network connectivity so gender dysphoria is the dissatisfaction um, typically trans people feel about the fact that their body and like their physical features don't identify or are, are not that of the gender identity that they identify with. Whereas body dysmorphia is a disorder that typically a lot of people with um, eating disorders um, or just people who, uh, it, so gender dysphoria, uh, body dysmorphia sorry, is a disorder and it essentially is like a fixation on, a cer on certain body parts um, and just distress regarding the fact that these body parts don't look like what you want them to look like. Mm -hmm. So um, the difference here is that body dysmorphia is a disorder whereas gender dysphoria is dissatisfaction with like primarily regarding the fact that one's body doesn't look like the gender that they identify with. Um, of mm. course, this dissatisfaction can provide like a lot of like significant distress in this person's life, but um, it's clear to make that distinction there. Yeah. Thank you, Adia. <laughs> um, so that, that helps um, us look at this topic a lot um, better and in a more um, like nuanced and complete light. Um, so within like the intrinsic network connectivity theory, so it essentially states that um, gender dysphoria individuals and their typical physical traits of their gender assigned at birth are not incorporated into their self-representation. So their self-representation would be essentially how they perceive um, their themselves, like their, their bodies and like who they are. 
Um, and this is actually associated with specific functional connectivity signatures in the brain. Um, and parts of our brain that recognize our own body as our own interact with parts of the brain that process these visual stimuli um, and they create our perception of oneself. Um, so for example, like when we're going about in everyday life, like we feel like we exist in this body, like we exist in this first person body. So why do we believe this? And like, why do we like feel like we're this thing that's like living and alive and in this body? Um, but we can attribute it to two parts of the brain. So one of these is the default mode network. And this is the part of the brain that's involved in mind-wandering and self-referential thinking. And so this is pretty much the part that consciously figures out like who you are and like what you're feeling like and what's going through your head and what you're thinking. And this part is like sort of can be similar to be your consciousness, but it's just one part of your sense of self um, and your self-representation. And then you have the salience network, which is involved in processing and evaluating various signals from your own body, including interoceptive states and stimuli that have social and emotional relevance. So this could be visual stimuli, auditory stimuli, but also like the way you perceive other people and the way other people make you feel is also included in this salience network. Um, and so when you combine these two, um, the default mode network and the salience network, you get a part of you get this sense, you get this self-representation. And so in the brain, there's a link between the default mode network and the salience network. Um, and, the, and this link is different in those with gender dysphoria than those who don't have gender dysphoria. So we can see another like neurobiological basis for, um, for like gender dysphoria, or at least a correlation between something happening in the brain and gender dysphoria. Um, so some specific of this connection and this difference is that there are weaker connections within the DMN, the default mode network in the precuneus, PCC, and in the ACC, there's just different parts of the brain. Um, and then the study looked further at this by using body morph. So it was essentially a software to shift um, like someone's self-perception by showing them a body and, and then like asking, do you think this, how well does this describe me? And when you have like bodies that for gender dysmorphic people who when you show them bodies that more resemble their gender identity, like it makes sense that they were feeling less distressed um, and that that the link was actually working better. Um, and so it's very interesting to see how there's actually a neurobiological basis and there's stuff happening in the brain between the connections of your self-representation that actually affect um, your gender identity, gender dysmorphia, um, and transgender. Actually, what's interesting is that people with gender dysphoria and body dysmorphia, obviously, it's not like if you have one, you're mm -hmm. more likely to develop the other, but it's people who have both. Mm -hmm. um, the, the presence of both tend to perpetuate each other. So it's like a very yeah. vicious cycle. Yeah. So what you said about like that study about like, um, you know, how the like SN brain had like the, the, the connection there was mm -hmm. more stronger when um, they saw their bodies morph into the identify that into the identity that they most identified with, um, that was really interesting because, mm -hmm. um, like I said, they like perpetuate each other. So it, it does show like the link that is there. But yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, and I think if you guys are interested in looking further, this will have the study in the description for the podcast. But this is going to be Foisner et al. And it's titled Intrinsic Network Connectivity and Own Body Perception in Gender Dysphoria. So yeah, um, so that was the second theory. And eventually, so we have all these different theories that offer different dimensions and perspectives on the neuro neurobiological basis of gender dysphoria.
Um, so we have this guy called Glisk, and in 2019, <laughs> he comes up with this new theory called the multi-sense theory. Um, and he takes a lot of different studies that have been done in the past on this issue, or he's taken pretty much all of them, and then looks at them at different dimensions and decided to assess them. And so he essentially found three components for why gender dysphoria exists. So this is, um, I believe, this is a more comprehensive study. Um, so the three dimensions were chronic distress, gender typical behavior and incongruence between perception of gender identity and body sex. So um, incongruence between perception of gender identity and body sex is a mouthful, but it's pretty much essentially what we just talked about in the second theory um, about your um, perception of self and your self-representation is different than what your body is actually um, biologically. So yeah, um, so essentially, this study also looked at the systemic changes in functional networks in the brain and body, especially since a lot of the studies before Glisk's study, a lot of the studies before Glisk's study looked at um, anatomical. So they looked at, oh, like this part of the brain is bigger, this part of the brain is smaller, but they never really looked into the function. So what Glisk did was he looked um, into like the functional correlations um, between different parts of the brain and like this part of the brain does this. And so we can theorize that how is this a contributing factor to gender dysmorphia or how does gender dysmorphia perpetuate this? Um, so he looks at the distress network, the social behavior network and the body ownership network. Um, and so I'm just gonna be going over these three dimensions um, to just extend on the multi-sense theory. All right, so the first one is gonna be um, chronic distress. So one really interesting thing to know about the brain is that there's this thing called the central extended amygdala and this includes a bunch of stuff. Um, but the whole, the whole purpose is essentially to be a mesolimbic reward system. Um, it also includes a social behavioral network and it has stress response. So I'm not going to go into massive detail, but a part of the brain that is in the central extended amygdala is actually the BNST. So we were just talking about the BNST earlier, which is also involved in um, wide-reaching stress response. And so Gliss theorized that the chronic distress that arises from chronic dysphoria can be a product of the differences in these central extended amygdala networks because these central extended amygdala networks are different um, in cisgender people and transgender people. Um, and the way that that these networks, or sorry, the way that this amygdala um, is different can help contribute to perpetuating the chronic distress that comes from um, like chronic dysphoria and um, chronic like body dysmorphia and so again like these studies they tried to look at causation but they couldn't look at causation but there are theories for why um, but there's also some correlation that got looked at so yeah um, that was the first dimension for chronic distress we have the second dimension that Gluss looked at which was gender nonconformity, and he essentially looked at one important part of the brain called the social behavioral network and so this is a part of the brain that predicts your social behavior and also predicts um, the way you act the way you think um, and so there's social behavioral network is pretty wide reaching and it includes the BNST. So we can BNST. see how important BNST, BNST, um, Joe JN, he knew what he was doing in 1995 when he looked <laughs> at the BNST. Um, but um, so when we talk about the social behavioral network, we can go back to a study in 1999 by James L. Goodson that looked at social behavioral networks in mammals and even if it was in mammals it can still be applicable to people because people are mammals and our brain anatomy is very similar to that of other mammals yep <laughs> um yeah so essentially he found that social behavioral networks of organisms so of mammals of humans result in vastly diverse social behaviors um including those pertaining to gender so 
your sense of gender identity and the way you act um, is like, since okay, since society classifies a lot of actions into gender roles, into male-based actions or female-based actions, it's very easy to draw the conclusion that, oh, like, if someone is doing this, then this is, like, a male action, this is a female action. Um, and so when we try to classify those, when it's simply just the social behavioral network being different for different people, then it sort of, like, makes it so that social behavioral networks quote-unquote predict gendered behaviors when in reality there's no such thing as gendered behaviors um but this can uh like contribute to people's feelings of like gender identity and um like sorry gender dysphoria and like a mismatch between their gender identity and their biological sex Mm -hmm. um and so oh wait sorry do you have anything to say no no no. i was just (laughs) i was just taking it all All of it in (laughs) um so within the social behavioral networks glisk wanted to look at like the brain part of the social behavior network and he wanted to look at which parts of the social behavioral network actually affect or actually predict gender dysphoria um yeah so he found one of these was the third interstitial nucleus of the hypothalamus inah3 and it's bigger in males than it is in females and it's also interesting to know it's bigger in heterosexual males and homosexual males um and trans male to females so trans females um than cisgender males and so we can see that like the role of sexuality um is also impacted by the brain um is another topic we hope we can cover another time Mm -hmm. but the fact that there's a lot of biological and neurobiological basis for this is really interesting. We also have parts of the anterior hypothalamus within the social behavioral network that affects, and then we have the BNST, which we talked about earlier. So that was the second dimension, which was, sorry, this is the second dimension, which was um, gender nonconformity. And then we have the third one, which is incongruence and body ownership. So this one, we've covered a bit on the previous theory um, with interconnectivity. Um, but this theory essentially says that incongruence and body ownership isn't only studied within the context of gender because people, scientists and researchers have studied this outside of gender. So one of these is Petrova and Arison's 2010 study that event, that also looked at like, why do people feel like they have ownership over a body? And like, can we actually manipulate people to feel like they have ownership over a body? And if we can manipulate people to feel like they have ownership over a body, then you can kind of analyze the factors that make people feel like they have ownership over a body. So one of the so the study that I took was the rubber hand illusion, and essentially it was just like there was a rubber hand, and then by t- by messing with the visual stimuli and like doing a lot of visual stimuli, so like poking the hand, and then simultaneously like poking their real hand, um, participants actually started to feel like this rubber hand was theirs um and so it shows like the subconscious role that the somatosensory and visual parts of the brain play in creating a sense of self which we touched on a little bit earlier um and it also like explain why we see or how we can see everything in first person so yeah wow that's um, actually really interesting like um, i think people would think that but to see like you know because like obviously when when you ask someone like but how do you know the sand is yours they're like oh yeah. well i can feel like the air, I can feel like, you know, yeah. the, my bed. You know what I mean? Like with their hand, they can <laughs> yeah, like yeah. gain an understanding of their external stimuli. Yeah, exactly. And it's like the parallel processing of the brain that like, that like we're taking in so much stimuli at a time and we don't consciously think about it, mm-hmm. but our brain like knows. And so like all of this like form our sense of self, which is really interesting. Um, so when you look at this body ownership network, 
Um, there's another collection of parts in the brain on top of what we looked at earlier that play a role in the sense of body ownership. So we have the right ventral motor premotor cortex and the posterior parietal cortex. We also have the insula, which is part of both the body ownership network and the central extended amygdala, which are the two perspectives we were talking about earlier. Um, and it's also involved in distress. So we can see how like all of these dimensions are kind of interconnected in like the role that they play in gender dysmorphia. Okay, so this study has its limits, though, because the body ownership's involvement in this process of gender dysphoria is correlational. So, oh, sorry, we don't know if this network, this body ownership network, and, like, the differences in this body ownership network in transgender individuals and cisgender individuals, we don't know if this causes um, the dissonance between biological sex and gender, or whether the dissonance between biological sex and gender causes the differences in this network. Mm -hmm. Or if there's a third factor that causes both differences or both the dissonance in biological sex and gender and the differences in this network. So the study isn't causation, but it's correlation. And um, like, as you can tell, like this field is not super, super developed. And there's a lot to figure out just because the brain is so complicated and there's so many possible functions for all these different parts of the brain. And so, so far, the correlation is the best that researchers can do, but we, it, it lends us a lot of insight into like the neurobiological basis of why um, gender dysphoria happens, um, why transgender people, um, like why their feelings are like valid in, on a scientific basis. Um, and yeah, so uh, that was all really interesting. Um, and one more thing about the body ownership network though, Hormonal, hormonal treatments were found to reverse the observed anatomic effects and increase consistency between self-perception and actual body image. Um, so mm -hmm. Adia is going to be talking on that. Yeah. All right. So um, before we go more in depth in this, I do want to give everyone an overview of, I guess, the medication that um, trans people can use and how it would how it affects like their body and their brain so for female to male medication that is from people who are um transitioning into a male presenting body um as you would expect they typically take testosterone injections so they take the administration of this is you know like via very like different routes it can be like intramuscular sub uh, subcutaneous or orally um, and it essentially just lowers the serum estradiol levels and raises the serum testosterone levels. And it results in the development of typical male secondary sex characteristics. So for female to male transformation medication, um, again, as you would expect, the most common method of transformation is through estrogen intake as well as anti-androgens. Uh, anti-androgens. So... Administration of estrogen, it can be taken orally, you know, transdermally, intramuscularly, subcutaneously, um, through injections or through pills. And similar to the uh, male-to-female um, medication, it will lower the serum testosterone levels and raise the serum estradiol levels. And it results in the development of typical female secondary sex characteristics, including breast growth, softer skin, decreased muscle mass, and, you know, like female pattern fat distribution. So unlike female-to-male transformation, though, um, these side effects are largely reversible. So... Um, Apparently, for male to female transformation, some side effect these side effects are reversible. Mm. Sorry, irreversible is what uh, I meant to say. Yes. 
Yeah. Um, so we also have this other kind of medication called anti-androgens. And um, androgens are they're used for uh, trans males who have not had an oreactomy. So that is testicle removal surgery. And uh, these medications block the effects of testosterone, resulting in decreased erectile function and allowing estrogen to develop typical female secondary sex characteristics. So what are androgens? So according to the article, this article I found in the National Library of Health, um, early in development, androgens are critical for the formation of important neuromuscular sex differences, decreasing the magnitude of normally occurring cell death in select motor neuron populations. So that sounds confusing, but actually the death of neurons during normal development is well do- is a well-documented mm. phenomenon, and it occurs throughout the nervous system. It's very normal and actually very vital. Mm. Initially, neurons are overproduced, and their numbers are subsequently reduced um, during a period of normally occurring cell death. So the magnitude of death can range up to 80% of the initial neuron population in a given, stru- in a gr- in a given structure. And this death typically occurs over a brief period of time. So normal neural death aids in the formation of specialized nervous system structures. Um, they Essentially, they aid in mm. creating a specific kind of shape that allows for the specific function that this like specialized structure in the nervous system has to perform. Oh, I see. So androgens protect cells from experiencing this normal occurring neuron death. They essentially prevent this death from happening. Mm. So anti-androgens then work to block androgens from binding to those receptors in the target cells. So essentially, they block the hormone androgens from protecting testicular cells from dying. So essentially what they do is they promote the death of testicular male to female, you know, um, trans people. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so uh, that is the, like medication overview um i did speak earlier about um the um one example of like the anatomical difference uh between Mm -hmm. like trans people and cis people um there is not a lot of research again here studies so Studies in this field, what they'll typically do is they'll investigate whether the brains of transgendered people resemble the sex that they were born into, the gender that they identify with, or, interestingly, this intermediate brain type. So Mm. kind of one that they can't, one that scientists can't say like, oh, this is like more resembling a male brain or a female brain. It's just like, it's kind of in this gray area where like, we don't really know what's happening. So um, there are studies that have found um, that there's this intermediate microstructure in the white brain matter of trans individuals that's not found in cis people. So, yeah, that kind of supports the intermediate brain type. Although the point is that because there's such a lack of research in this field, we can't really say whether um, like trans brains more, you know, more closely resemble the sex that they're born into, the gender they identify with, or, you know, yeah. So currently there are two hypotheses that could explain differences in brain structures in trans people versus those of cis people. So there's one that focuses on the neural developmental patterns and contributions of hormones and hormone receptors to brain development. So as you would expect, um, 
as your brain develops, you know, from as like a child, the contributions of hormones and their hormone receptors are very critical in how the brain forms. So this hypothesis essentially mm-hmm. just is saying that like there's a different course of action, I'm assuming, of like neurodevelopmental patterns um, and their conjunction with like the hormones and their hormone receptors that could lead to a different anatomical structure that is present in transgendered people. That sounds confusing, but I'm not quite the the hypothesis yeah. is very, very yeah. in depth and very technical. Yeah. Um and sure. the other suggests that there is a discrepancy between one's notion of their gender identity versus their brain's representation of their body. So this kind of ties into like body perception, which is mm-hmm. what Matthew touched upon. But interestingly, in this article or in this experiment, um when I say brain's representation of their body, it's not necessarily a conscious representation of their body like consciously trans people will say i identify with this gender identity more than the body that the biological sex i was born into represents right but this is actually the neural brain's representation of their body like in the study people were shown like images of like bodies their body is transforming into different gender identities and like just generally their body morphing and they were essentially the scientists were tracking their like neural activity so uh, um and then like determining what the brain's representation of was of their body was um so yeah there's the discrepancy between someone's conscious i guess notion of their gender identity versus their actual brain's representation yeah and like this links back to like the default mode network and like the science network because those things are not conscious. Like, we're not constantly thinking about all these stimuli that are coming. But the way that it can be studied and can be seen that your brain actually works that stuff to give yourself representation. And then how um, how that self-representation matches with reality actually right, is also right. trackable in the brain. Like, that's so cool. Exactly. Like, I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize is that gender and sex has, like, a very... It's, it goes very, very deep into the brain. Like, it has a yeah. lot of fundamental developmental links, and it, it causes, like, the brain to develop in very unique ways. As mm-hmm. a, yeah. yeah, anyways. <laughs> so um, I guess now moving on to the research into neural activity in transgendered people. So unfortunately, even more so than the research in the uh, anatomical differences of trans people, there's even less research here in the neural activity differences. Mm -hmm. Um, So existing work in this field, interestingly, it revolves um, around tasks that elicit a sex-typical response in trans Mm -hmm. individuals, and then deciphering where they stand in comparison to their cis individuals. So essentially, uh, yeah, look similar to how they are analyzed in brain structure studies. So um, essentially what that means is that when I say sex-typical responses, say we have like a sample, like a study in which we have like cis women, trans women, and then cis men. So a sex-typical response is essentially set by how a cis woman would respond to a specific stimuli. So that Mm. is essentially like the baseline. So when we're comparing like the neural activity of a trans woman when presented with the same stimuli, we and then also comparing it to that of the cis man, we can then see where their neural activity stands in comparison to the cis woman and cis man, and then seeing where their neural activity is most closely like resembling, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. 
Right. So such studies often revolve around like olfactory processing. So specifically Mm -hmm. relating to the processing of olfactory stimuli to survival and reproduction. Survival and reproduction Mm -hmm. is key here. Um, uh, Mental rotation, which is essentially the ability to visualize how objects look from different viewing perspectives. Just side note, humans are very bad at this skill. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah. Um, or retrieving uh, verbal information from memory, which is also called verbal fluency. So olfactory processing. So a typical study done in olfactory processing in trans individuals has to do with pheromones, as you would expect. Mm. You know, like receiving pheromones are very key to survival and reproduction, right? So a 2007 study at Oxford University revealed mm-hmm. that neural activity in the hypothalamus of transgendered women was similar to that of a cis woman when encountering mm-hmm. male pheromones. So as you can see, this study falls into the category of you know, uh, trans brains acting in the same way of the gender that they identify with. Wait, um, so, for that study, oh, yeah. I was just thinking like, do you think this also has to do with like maybe like sexual attraction just because I yes. think the majority of like trans women are attracted to men and so that is yeah that is like definitely pheromone probably also plays a role in that too that is something definitely to consider i think we would um just us we would need to do like yeah. i guess more research on yeah, sexuality sure. and like sexuality and like the resulting like brain like neural activity because if we had like for example gay men like interacting mm. with the stimuli and then we could track like their neural activity and then mm. we could see if it is similar to that of cis women if that mm, makes sense exactly, exactly. then we can make that correlation but um that's definitely something to consider um in this study uh the second one has to do with mental rotation so in general men tend to be better at visualizing what objects look like from different perspectives or i guess more accurately mm-hmm. reflect what mentally rotated objects look like. So in a 2010 study, transgender women like cis women showed reduced brain activity in the parietal lobe, which is a brain region crucial for this skill, while mentally manipulating 2D and 3D objects in space. Actually, a 2010 study published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine confirmed this by documenting an increase in activity in the parietal cortex in cis men relative to trans women who had either received or like both had received and not received hormone therapy. Mm. So like even without receiving hormone therapy, there was a decrease in the activity in this specific region. Mm. Uh, and then the third one is verbal fluency. So women tend to be better at verbal fluency uh, compared to cis men. <laughs> a 2013 study published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine reflected that transgendered girls were more verbally fluent or were able to retrieve more words um, from memory than the cis boy, girl, and trans boy participants. So, um, yeah, of course, you have to take a lot of these with a grain of salt mm-hmm. again because... Of course, these are there are these studies, but um, there's not a lot of research that could, I guess, confirm mm-hmm. a lot of these studies. Just you know, just by the sheer lack of research as a whole in this field. Yeah, and it's also but, that yeah. these studies are correlational, so yes. they don't really tell us that much about why this happens. But they they can give us clues and insights into potentially why there's this link between verbal fluency um, and 
gender dysphoria or transgender individuals Mm -hmm. or like mental rotation and like the correlation between that and transgender individuals or gender dysphoria so exactly we're like we're taking baby steps to get there but we are scientists getting there yeah exactly so research like we said in this field is very much in the works the brain is very 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 complicated complicated. and there is a whole factor of reasons why research in this um, field is lacking. Like, for example, mm-hmm. um, I, I there was this article that I read that reflected that um, the understanding of neurobiology is very slowly catching up. Mm-hmm. So, like, some hindrances to advancing research in this field would be, like, the relatively small numbers in MRI studies, lack of cisgender control groups for comparisons, Mm. the absence of pre-treatment data, lack lack of taking into consideration confounding factors, such as like Mm -hmm. age of onset of gender dysphoria, sexual Mm. orientation, like we said before, non-sex specific hormonal uh, effects on both sexes. And then also just like the absence of studies on gender non-binary people. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, like, just a whole host of reasons as to why research is lacking. Yes, truly. Um, But it's still important that we take a look at this research because this is what we have. And it does give us insight and it gives us a neurobiological basis for why this happens. Right. And, of course, like, you don't, just for everyone listening, you don't need scientific research to validate your gender identity or how you feel Mm -hmm. in terms of like you deserve respect and support absolutely no matter what the science says and we're here to support you yes of course i want it always um and so one last thing before you go we have some organizations that we really want to let you guys know that you can support that um support transgender individuals so one of these is the transgender resource center in hong kong and they mostly look at raising awareness and advocacy um, in education. So this can be in universities, but this can also be in secondary schools and maybe even primary schools. Um, so we have their website listed below in the description. So go check them out if you're interested. Um, we also have Enigma. So Enigma is this USC kind of team. And they essentially, um, they're essentially this group, this gender studies group that's working to promote inclusivity and ensure diversity specifically um with the lgbtq plus community Mm. in uh to understand issues and disparities relating to sex and gender in brain health so enigma as a whole is essentially just like a organization to promote like the spread and access of like neuroimaging like um Mm. yeah like like neuroimaging data across countries and professionals to increase these study sample sizes for like you know like future research so it's it's a great um Mm -hmm. organization to support yeah 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 that's what we have thank you guys so much for listening um and we hope that you guys learned a lot today and can go with the greater appreciation for neuroscience yeah yep all of you are valid and True. We hope you have a great Pride Day every day. Every, <laughs> every day. day is Pride Day. <laughs>